This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me, as always, is our researcher and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everyone. Steve, when you think of the birth of America, what cities come to mind? Uh, Boston and Philadelphia. And Philadelphia, New York, maybe. How about Akron? Yep. Uh, Akron, what? <laughs> Not Akron so much? No, we were the Ohio Valley. We weren't even a state. What if I told you that the area we know as Akron today not only played a small role in our young country's fight for independence, but that its role was as a military shipyard? Oh, that would make sense. At Lake Erie? <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Actually, I have a feeling most of our listeners are probably got their faces screwed up because, you know, Akron's in the Midwest and inland. So why in the world would the U.S. Army in its infancy build boats in Akron? But you gave a clue there. So that is not our mystery. We know it happened and we know why. The mystery is figuring out exactly where this shipyard was because there are a whole lot of local history lovers who would like to market, display it, and celebrate it. So settle in, because before we talk about that, you need a little American history lesson. Now, hopefully you know the basics of the American Revolution, especially if you've seen that recent release of the Broadway production of Hamilton. But just so we're all on the same page, let me give you a quick primer. It's 1776. America is a collection of colonies owned by King George III of Great Britain. It has been hard for George to hang on to those colonies. He had to keep fighting the French, which was also over here trying to carve out part of North America for themselves. And those battles cost a lot of money. So King George decides to increase the taxes paid by the colonists to replenish his treasury. The colonists aren't having it. 
So enter all those early patriots you read about back in school. We're talking George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, Benjamin Franklin, Paul Revere, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Betsy Ross. These folks announced they're starting a new country. They present their Declaration of Independence and spend the next five years working to kick the British out. So what was Ohio doing at this time? Well, before independence was declared, Ohio was a mostly unexplored frontier because the king prohibited people from settling here. Oh, sure, there were some who broke the rules, but King George wanted all of his subjects in the colonies where he could keep track of them. He didn't want them wandering off into territories, doing God knows what, God knows where, conspiring with God knows who. But after the 4th of July, 1776, adventurers were free to head west, and Ohio became the American frontier. Colonists, missionaries, trappers, and farmers hitched up their wagons to go check it out. Now, in 1781, the American Revolution was done and won. But that didn't mean the young country wasn't going to have to continue to defend itself. Because a few years later, in what we call the War of 1812, the British were knocking on the door again. The British were supplying arms to Native Americans and encouraging them to attack the new settlers and stop the U.S. from expanding into the West. And this wasn't hard to do because the British were right next door. They owned Canada. That's right. Ohio was not only the western edge of the United States, it was the northern edge of the United States. And the enemy was right on the other side of Lake Erie. And so America declared war on the British again. And this time, that put Ohio on the front lines. One of the first things the British did when the war was declared was seize control of Lake Erie. They already had a small force of warships there. America's military had none. And then the British crossed the Detroit River and seized Detroit. Well, if we were going to get Detroit back and defend any further incursion from Lake Erie, we were going to need some vessels on the lake. But where to build them? It's not like you could start a shipbuilding operation on the lake shore in full view of passing British ships. We needed a secret shipyard. But where? Well, you need a waterway that empties into Lake Erie, something big enough for a ship to navigate, a water source that could also be used for perhaps 60 teams of oxen that were going to be needed for the production of those boats. If you're in Northeast Ohio, there is only one real option, the Cuyahoga River. Back then, Nothing obstructed the Cuyahoga River. It was even deeper and wider than we know it today. And the southernmost tip of that river is in the Merriman Valley, part of present-day Akron, Ohio, about 30 miles from Lake Erie. Of course, you also need a supply of wood. No problem there. Merriman Valley is part of the Cuyahoga Valley National Park, miles and miles of nothing but forest. You also needed a place near existing roads. 
Pittsburgh was the closest place that could supply such an operation. And if you were going to transport everything, the oxen, the laborers, the charcoal, nails, tools, you needed a way to get it here. The Merriman Valley could be reached partway by existing roads and partway by historic trails used by Native Americans for whom the Cuyahoga River was their local highway. So, an officer named Elijah Wadsworth was put in charge of finding this site. He was a captain under George Washington during the Revolution, and now he was a major general. He was in charge of about 3,000 militiamen. They were the only thing standing in the way of the British who had just taken over Detroit and the rest of the country. The facility in Merriman Valley was named Camp Wadsworth. Now, frankly, I'm not 100% sure if they called it that back then or if we just came to call it that in more modern times. But anyway, it was there at Camp Wadsworth where the Army got to work on those boats. Secretary of War John Armstrong allocated $10,000 and put in an order for 75 Schenectady boats. That was a style very specific to New England. They were flat bottom vessels, maybe 25 feet long, that could be rowed or propelled by poles in a river or by a raised sail on open waters. Each boat would hold up to 50 men with their equipment and provisions. And there was no time to waste. Armstrong wanted to retake Detroit in the spring of 1813. So construction on the Camp Wadsworth and its boatyard began in September of 1812. We know there were two huge oval-shaped boat pits dug a few feet into the ground, but not so far that it hit the water table. The pits would serve as dry docks. Together, the two pits would have run the length of a football field. The holes in the ground allowed the boats to be placed over them while allowing workers to access the boats from underneath. Their dimension suggested they could have been working on 10 boats at a time. In addition to the pits, Camp Wadsworth would accommodate up to 400 men. There would have been a large camp kitchen, a warehouse for storing bushels of grain, a headquarters building, and probably dozens of shanties and lean-tos. Over the span of four months, the shipbuilders knocked out 55 boats. Imagine the assembly line they must have had, men cutting the trees, the oxen dragging them to the sawmill, others making the boat frames and nailing the planks down. Once the hull of the boats were done, they were moved downstream to Peninsula and an area known as the Pineries, where the masts, spars, and sails would be added. Then they would continue on their way to Cleveland. In Cleveland, William Henry Harrison himself went to see the boats. Harrison, of course, will become president later, but during the War of 1812, he was commander of the U.S. Army in the Northwest. And those boats were his ticket to Detroit. He was planning the nation's first amphibian invasion. And so from Cleveland, the boats were ferried to Upper Sandusky, then slipped over to Putten Bay on Middle Bass Island, where they would be loaded with men and artillery. 
By now, you should be all excited about what comes next. What great battle awaits those boats made so secretively in Akron? Alas, the War of 1812's version of the Normandy invasion is going to be a little anticlimactic. And here's why. Before that invasion began, nine U.S. Navy ships under Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry decided to challenge six ships from the British Royal Navy and defeated them in what is called the Battle of Lake Erie. A couple of those ships had just been built at Presque Isle in Pennsylvania at the same time the Akron transport boats were being built. Other boats in Commodore Perry's fleet had been towed by draft oxen up the Niagara River from New York. Anyway, it was all over in a matter of hours. The victorious Commodore Perry sent word to his general these famous words, We have met the enemy, and they are ours. Well, that took the air out of the British. They retreated, and when Harrison and his troops, transported by those Akron boats, landed in Detroit a few days later, the place had already been evacuated. So that's the history. The mystery is, where was that boatyard? Enter two modern-day researchers, Jim Hudkins and Jim Brenner. Now, Jim Hudkins is in his mid-90s, and he has spent more than half a century collecting letters, lore, and legend on this. Back in the 1940s, he talked to a family that used to live on Merriman Road as it descended into Merriman Valley. An elderly man told him how, as a boy in the late 19th century, the boat pits had filled with water and locals used them for swimming. He recalled they were perhaps eight feet deep, and he remembered his bare feet touching the wooden floor. There are also some references to the boatyard in history books, letters, journals, and personal statements. For instance, there was an account recorded in 1861 where a local man talked about back when he helped move those boats from the Akron site up to Peninsula. How that part of the journey took three weeks because there had been so little water, they had to use brute force to wrestle them through the shallow river. There was another statement from the son of a canal boat captain who once mentioned having seen the shipyard in the 1850s and reported even then it was falling back to nature. And Jim Hudkins also poured over documents at the Library of Congress and the National Archives, where he found military correspondence detailing the effort. We have a rough idea of where those pits might be, should be. Because so many sources reference old portage. That term points to a stretch of land between the parallel roads of Merriman Road and Akron Peninsula Road. Somewhere between the point where Smith Road drops into the valley and the land that used to be the Valley View Golf Course, the shipyard should be there. Unfortunately, this area is as famous for its floods as anything else. And the two centuries that have passed between the War of 1812 and today appears to have filled the pits with silt. So if time has reclaimed the site, how can we still prove its physical existence? Well, think back to all the work done to build Camp Wadsworth. 
In addition to the boat pits themselves, there were buildings and trenches, all sorts of things that would have displaced a lot of dirt. There are technologies that allow archaeologists today to search for disruptions in the texture of the ground. Given that people recalled feeling the wooden floor of those boat pits in the late 1890s, there could be some significant physical evidence as well. Remember, there were only 55 boats that were used from the Akron operation, but more than that had been ordered. It could be that other boats that were in progress were simply abandoned and remained buried by silt, a pretty good preservative. Of course, there are other things that could indicate a site where 400 men lived for several months. Coins, buttons, nails, buckles, bottles, clay smoking pipes. Now, Akron couldn't even begin to look for this stuff before because the prime target area was that golf course. But in 2016, Summit Metro Parks purchased that golf course and added it to the county's park system. And that has allowed its staff to do some field work the past couple of years using magnetic radiometry and electrical recividity to try and locate the disturbed soil. They haven't been successful yet, but say once they get money to continue, they plan to try again. Now, money isn't the only challenge here. Part of the land that might contain the shipyard is a wetland. That could involve some underwater archaeology and careful consideration of how to navigate that federally protected site. Another problem, the same area has seen disruption in the past 200 years. This is the same area where the Ohio and the Erie Canal was built through in the 1820s, where the railroad came through in the 1880s. And it's the major trunk sewer line for that part of Akron built in the 1920s. Jim Hudkins said lore from old timers suggest construction debris from all of these earth-moving scenarios covered up what remained of the shipyard. So at this point, why bother looking for it at all? Well, I spoke with Dr. Megan Schaefer. She's the resources coordinator for Summit County Metro Parks and has been helping to search for the site. And she said, who wouldn't want to know more about Akron's connection to a formational event in American history? If you read about the War of 1812, you are not going to see any reference to boats being built in Akron. It was such a secret. It would have disappeared completely if it weren't for a handful of references and the determination of that local resident, Jim Hudkins. Finding the site again would give Summit County reason to celebrate its role in America's independence. I think uh, with history, we've seen that silt really preserves boats and wood. So maybe one day we'll dig that up. You know, it seems to me like it's there and waiting to be found. You know, if it has survived 200 years, it can probably survive a little bit more. And technology is only getting better and better. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more, head on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Hope you all have a great week. We'll see you Sunday for another regular full-sized Ohio Mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week, and may all of your mysteries have happy endings. 
Ohio Mysteries is produced by Stephen Yoder and Paula Schleiss. Special thanks to our Patreon and PayPal supporters. Thank you, Audionautics, Daniel Birch, and Adderink for the music. And of course, to all of you who support our show by listening and telling friends and family about us. You can find us on Twitter at Mysteries Ohio. You can find us on Facebook by just searching for Ohio Mysteries. We are also on Instagram at Ohio Mysteries. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.